Let me quote from a recent Nate Silver tweet. Nate is an American statistician, he's a writer, he analyzes sports, elections, and more. He's the founder and editor-in-chief of 538. He's also a special correspondent for ABC News. But here's the quote. If you want to be a good data scientist, you should spend about 49% of your time developing your statistical intuition, i.e. how to ask good questions of the data, and about 49% of your time on domain knowledge, improving overall understanding of your field, only 2% on methods per se. Today's podcast, machine learning and AI, but not the 2%. Nothing on machine learning techniques today. Instead, we're going to be talking about how domain knowledge, as well as statistical intuition, can help develop some really powerful solutions. With me today is Tara Chazai, a data scientist and solution architect at Microsoft. Prior to that, she's been a research scientist and has recently been working with some teams that have created some really pretty interesting solutions. And I'm looking forward to a great discussion. I'm John Pryle, and welcome to the Georgian Impact Podcast. So Tara, here's my question, or here's where I want to start this dialogue. And you know, over the years, as we've been learning and watching and hearing more about machine learning and studying, and I've always heard different people say, look, all you need to do is you know, throw all the data into the machine learning system, and you'll just get all the answers. And I don't want to be a skeptic. It doesn't quite work for me. So I want to use an example, and it was a project that I think you were part of. It was optimizing bus routes. So I could take all the data there is about bus routes and I could throw it into a system so I'll know how many people are on the bus, the time of day, when it arrived, when it departed, all that stuff. But what I learned from doing the research on getting ready for this podcast, if weather data is not included in that data set, you're probably not going to get the results that you're looking for. So talk to me a little bit about just how to get the right data and how do you think about building a machine learning solution? Yeah, for sure. That's a great point, John. And data, as you all know, is the main driver of AI. And if you don't have the right data, as you mentioned, well, the machine learning pipeline is not going to perform as we expect it to, to perform. And for that particular project, we actually did include uh, GPS data, weather data, traffic data, all of the data points that our customer being TransLink, Vancouver's metro system provided us with. But still, there's so much more that we can always include and take advantage of to even boost the performance further. But yeah, making sure that we do have enough data the right data points that are of high quality is the, one of the very first steps of approaching a data science and an ML project. But I guess in support of the, the people that tell me throw the data in, you don't start necessarily with a theory. You really start with kind of looking at the broadest spectrum of what data might be relevant to the challenges you're trying to solve. Yeah, well, that's true. This field is called data science for a reason. It's at the end of the day, a scientific approach that we want to take, starting from the right data, but not necessarily, we don't, at the very beginning, we don't necessarily know that it's the best data set possible. We can always make it uh, better and better and better. And at some point, we got to start experimenting with that data and go through that entire cycle of building an ML project, starting from the data, but going through the modeling, evaluating the model, tracking the results, and again, making informed decisions based on those results and going back to the initial data set and then 
the next step and the next step and modifying all of these steps afterwards. So you're absolutely right that that experimental and that scientific approach is an integral part of building an EML project for sure. Isn't you really reinforcing Nate Silver's comment, you know, first to you know, 49% asking good questions of the data. Sure. And I like that you you iterate. You don't just throw it in and say, here's what we think the answer might be. You really do have to test and validate. We often spend a lot of time talking about bias, mm-hmm. uh, biases. Mm-hmm. So you really have to kind of look at the output of the data and make sure the data you brought in wasn't biased and the results you got at the end were not biased as well. Yes? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very true. That's one of the one of the main challenges in the AI and ML community, both in academia and the industry, to make sure that our AI and ML uh, decisions are unbiased and fair. And the main reason is that AI and ML, if used blindly, can simply amplify the biases that we have in the data. And to avoid these biases to be reinforced and amplified by our ML algorithms, we really need to spend time making sure that our data is de-biased and is representative of different communities. It's inclusive and diverse. And then later on, go through that entire cycle of building a machine learning pipeline. However, it is a very, very challenging process to make sure that the data is de-biased. If it was that easy, there wouldn't be so much effort both again in academia and industry to make sure that we have unbiased and ethical and, and fair AI. But one of the approaches that you see commonly these days is employing explainable AI and interpretable AI approaches to make sure that our results are fair and ethical. And it is a very controversial topic because everyone has their own definition of explainability. Some people really believe that you, by explainable AI, to, to really achieve explainable AI, you need to be able to understand the inner working of your black box. To be able to do that, you really have to sacrifice performance because there's this unavoidable fundamental trade-off between accuracy and explainability. Uh, And some people believe in post-hoc analysis. They say, okay, we do have the input of the AI system or that black box, and we do have the output. But we try to make associations between the two without touching the black box. And based on those associations, we start explaining the output of that black box. And there's a third view on this as well, where people say, yeah, we don't really need explainable AI. All we need to do is to do uh, is to run extensive tests on the performance of the system based on some metrics that we define related to bias and ethical decision-making. For example, if self-driving cars are killing less people in our simulations, well, hopefully digital simulations, than humans do, then that's a good thing and we can trust that system. So there are a lot of controversies and a lot of different views around explainability, bias, and fairness for sure. This is really interesting. So I want to follow up a little more on explainability. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting, the trade-offs that are made for performance and explainability, and maybe different applications have different needs and they'll decide which way to move that lever. But I'm thinking about explainability and quite often I've read you know, data sets that come in because of the data itself are inherently biased. If you, and maybe it's not fair to call it bias, I'm looking for a, we've, this came up in an earlier podcast probably a year ago, but I'm looking for a track record of successful CEOs of startups and the data I'm going to get 
will be white males mm-hmm. or there's medical data that's out there looking at heart attack victims and it's often leaving out minorities or women because the data they currently have. So how would you go about when you talk about explainability and explaining what you did, how do you explain that you recognize that maybe the data is not right, but I want to find successful women CEOs or predict healthcare results for a, for a minority community, for example. How, how do you make sure you do that when you are, obviously you're being transparent, you're explaining it, but you still got to be unbiased? Mm-hmm. So you can start with the data itself and run some statistical methods and trust your statistical intuition as you started the podcast with talking about a statistical intuition and make sure that that data is as I mentioned earlier, inclusive and diverse. But a lot of times you may miss some biases uh, that are present in data, which is simply the, using those basic statistical tools. So at the end of the day, you have to run a lot of tests and experiments after the fact and define metrics and define procedures to make sure that, that the result is unbiased which tells you to some degree that the data was unbiased because these two are always highly associated with one another. Biased data often results in biased, uh, biased outcome from your machine learning pipeline. And I can give you another very interesting example with uh, the introduction of deep learning and with actually deep learning becoming kind of taking over uh, the world of AI came a very interesting application of neural networks in the context of natural language processing called work to work which allows you to look at how humans formulate sentences and language and looks at coherence uh, of different words and build mathematical representations of different words in our language mm-hmm. and once you pass your corpus your collection of documents to this algorithm and get those mathematical representations back, researchers showed that these representations are capable of kind of capturing syntactic and semantics of relationships of different words. For example, the relationship between the word man and woman was the same as the relationship between the words king and queen. And these word representations became the underlying features for a lot of other natural language processing tasks, such as the translators. And then later on, after running a lot of tests, people realized that it's simply amplifying the biases in the documents we fed to the algorithm. Wow. So they, they started seeing that the relationship between the woman, the word woman, and homemaker was the same as the relationship between man and computer programmer. Wow, which was simply based on the biases in the in the documents, which are often news articles because they're publicly available and clean text that can easily be used as as the training data. So it's just about running a lot of different tests systematically based on pre-specified metrics. At the end of the day, that would shed light on whether the data is biased or not, or whether or how we need to debias it. And we'll go back to the Nate Silver quote about domain knowledge. Mm-hmm. Then the team, the data science team, shouldn't just be 
programming jockeys, uh, which I don't know is gendered. I hope it's not gendered. Programmers, you need the people that really understand that end user or even sociologists. So you need different types of skill sets on that mm -hmm. team to, as you run these test cases again and again to see what's coming out of it. That's very true. So let's, let's do another example. Let's do a large company, a B2C company. And someone at the top says, here's, I want to improve my customer satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Well, now you've got gobs of data, I, just staying technical, gobs of data. Mm -hmm. And do you throw it all in? Do you think about it before you throw it in? That what's relevant? Do you think about the output? So if you've got just a general problem like that, but it's a serious problem, I really want to improve customer satisfaction. How do you go about that and think about the creation of a machine learning and artificial intelligence system that could focus on, on that problem? Mm -hmm. So... Something that I found interesting after being in this role, because in this role at Microsoft, I get to work with a lot of different customers from a wide range of industry articles. And you can see that almost every single customer is capturing clickstream data when it comes to their user interfaces and interactions between the user and the website or the online platform. They're capturing, they do have the right infrastructure to capture that clickstream data. Mm -hmm. But it is such an underutilized resource when it comes to uh, mining insight from that data and kind of understanding the reasons why people might be happy with certain features on that UI or might be unhappy with their experience on that UI. And so we got involved with one of our customers where we were given terabytes of clickstream data and the right tools and resources to, to understand how we can improve user experience. This would be clickstream both on, say, a browser and a mobile phone. It would be, it would be multiple sources of, of input. This clickstream would come across all devices? Correct. That's okay, correct. So that's another piece of data to analyze, right? That's very true. Yeah. And um, people do have very different experiences on different platforms. So we got that clickstream data for both the online platform and the mobile platform. And we started analyzing them independently and building machine learning models to really model that user behavior and understand what makes their user experience interesting and appealing and what is it that they don't like about that UI. And what we ended up doing was to adapt natural language processing methods to clickstream data because if you really think about it, natural language processing uh, methods are developed based on the idea uh, that language is a sequence of tokens, tokens being the words or the characters, mm -hmm. depending on the, uh, the task at hand. And we use the same idea that clickstream is simply a sequence of actions which are the atomic behaviors or the atomic interactions of the user with that interface. The very same as in the language of that words are the atomic units of our language. Interesting. It's not just the individual click, it's the sequence of clicks, right? Exactly. It's a sequence of clicks that make up that entire experience. And we started adopting a lot of different natural language processing techniques, starting from traditional NLP all the way to the state of the art of deep learning to see uh, and experiment what each of these methods are really capable of 
giving us what we want from that clickstream data. Uh, and we got actually really, really good results because we did also have some survey scores that from surveys that people filled out yep. after yep. they were done with their online platform or mobile platform experience and, and um, session. And given that labeled data, we were able to see that the idea actually was really, really working and gave us amazing results. I'm glad to hear that you used the survey because one of my frustrations happens to be a bank of mine in the US and I really hate the UI. I feel like I click three times when I should be clicking one time. And I'm, <laughs> I'm often just saying, I'd like to find this programmer. But every once in a while I'll say, would you like to take a survey? And then I say, why am I clicking three times? So <laughs> that, that almost, be, if enough people say that in the surveys, then you mm -hmm. could go back and find that problem in the click stream, but you wouldn't necessarily know it was a problem that I click three times unless you're comparing it to another system where happier people are going through the same action and maybe clicking one time, perhaps, something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you're bringing up an interesting point because it's not only the comments you provide, it's also the experience itself with the click a string data that we can capture. And you do provide comments. We did have the comments that users actually did provide in the survey as well, alongside that clickstream data and the score they gave to that experience. So all of these data pieces together gave us this comprehensive view of the user experience and allowed us to really, really understand uh, the reasons behind low and high experience scores. Cool. So let's just kind of work towards the end of this. So we've done, you know, we've thought about the data that we're feeding into the system like you said, for the bus system, you're recognizing GPS and traffic and weather. And we talked about kind of thinking about the clickstream data as another source of input, how to analyze that. So now we're sort of, I want to kind of get to the end point and really do a little stronger discussion of validation. And there was another project, another Microsoft project that had to do with predicting prediction of kind of opioid issues. And the data that was being fed into the system was quite extensive. You know, they were looking at uh, recovery homes. They were looking at issues of overdoses and deaths within a certain distance from these homes. There's a, and then they began to look at payments and crime rates. And there's a, it's an amazing amount of, of data that you processed. At the end, how do you get to the level of comfort that you've got a predictive model that you can kind of pass on to your customers and say, we think we've got something that we're relatively comfortable with? How, how do you get to kind of the, the end state? To make sure that our uh, model is ready to go into production and it's fully validated, we do have some performance metrics, some conventional performance metrics that are defined in the field that will allow you to measure your confidence in a model in terms of its accuracy, for example. But we need performance metrics that go beyond just accuracy of the model. We need to ensure that our model is fair and unbiased, as we discussed earlier. We do need to have explainable AI processes in place, and we do need to have those metrics and um, measures of trust in the model that can minimize or, or the lowest risk associated with that model, predicting a particular, for example, predicting someone's user experience. And this is a less sensitive use case. It is even more important for more sensitive use cases, uh, for example, in the legal services domain or in the financial services domain when we want to prove 
someone's mortgage or decline someone's mortgage or credit card based on AI and ML uh, model. We really, really need to spend time on that explainability and fairness part of the process uh, for which we'll definitely need domain knowledge as, as you brought up earlier. And, and the final piece, depending on where and when that model is being built and is going to go into production, we really, really need to ensure that it's compliant with all of the regulations that are in place at the time, which is the final piece of, of, of before it can go into production. And later on, we just, again, we just don't leave the model in production and never touch it again. We do have that cycle and that loop that gives us uh, back some feedback from the model that we can always improve uh, the model based on. That is a very powerful answer. If I think about what you just said in terms of not just get the performance metrics, but understand the transparency and the explainability and that you can communicate the elements of biases and to keep working and improving. That's the kind of things that your customers must love to hear. So Tara, that was a great discussion and a great answer. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, John. Thank you for the opportunity. 